Good morning. Welcome to Money Management. I'm Mike Mayo with the Spokane office of the Opus 111 Group. We're here as we are every Saturday morning at 9 to talk with you about the markets and the economy and to give you some information to help you make good informed decisions about your own investment situation. And if you have questions or would like a second opinion, it's real easy to do so. We can do so at no cost or obligation to you. All you need to do is call uh, the office uh, in Spokane. It's 509-747-3323. And just say you'd like uh, to get a second opinion. And again, no charge, no obligation. So, what we do? Well, we ended the month is what we did. And the month was pretty good. Uh, the S&P, well, let's do the low guy first. The Dow was up 2.3% for the month. The S&P up 5.5%. And the NASDAQ, with all the big techs, was up 6.8%. So that's the fourth month in a row that they've been up. Now, specifically yesterday, we had the Dow closing at 26,428. The S&P at 3271. The NASDAQ at 10745 Gold settled at 1970 an ounce. Silver at $24.34. Crude up to 43.18 a barrel. 10-year Treasury at 0.53%. And soft white wheat quoted for what was it august at 575 a bushel you know uh monday we're going to get some more reports we have the uh, manufacturing index come out tuesday we have factory orders Uh, we have private sector payrolls come wednesday thursday is the unemployment claims and then friday is the monthly jobs report and i'm sure the traders will be waiting anxiously for that Now, this was, this last week, was the busiest week uh, of the quarter for corporate earnings. And you saw a lot of momentum trading going on, different profit-taking here and there, a lot of knee-jerking responses to data. The numbers were all well-anticipated. I mean, it's not like it's a a surprise uh, that any of these numbers came in, uh, such as they did. But let me review some of the earnings that uh, came forward this week. Well... I don't know if this is earnings, but Kodak uh, <laughs> is back in the news, but not for photography. Uh, once upon a time, they were the factor in photography. Paper, cameras, jeepers. I mean, if it were, who did you buy camera stuff from? But not anymore. Last Friday, the stock was at $2.10 a share. It closed yesterday at $21.66. That's rather a big jump. Well, it was because they're getting a $765 million loan to produce some pharmaceutical ingredients. Now, (laughs) I'm not exactly sure how camera and pharmaceutical ingredients go together, but uh, the folks on Robinhood and those kinds of sites uh, apparently thought it was a fun thing to do, and that's why the stock was up. So, uh, oh, and here's one uh, based on my market theory of relativity, which is this. You know, when you come up with earnings or uh, projections for growth or what have you, um, whether you're talking about an individual company, a sector, or the market itself, um, once those numbers are out, are, are printed, if you will, uh, then it becomes a question, were they better than or worse than what we anticipated? Not so much what the number itself was, but how close was it to those criteria? And if it's 
if it's way on the upside, better than expected, you'll see the stock jump a lot. If it's to the downside, not so much. So um, in term, in that regard, Starbucks reported a loss of 46 cents a share. Now, that was less than the 59 cents that had been anticipated that the st- uh, earnings would be down. Uh, the stock <laughs> went up uh, 3% that day, and it closed uh, up $3. Uh, so, like I said, it's all relative. And uh, let's see, do we have other ones? Ah, uh, yes. Apple, you may have heard of Apple. Well, they did a couple of good things yesterday. First of all, they came out with killer earnings, and it was their stock today which uh, basically pulled the whole market up. Uh they uh, are also doing a four-for-one stock split for those of you who own Apple. Uh, you are going to be in the end of August uh, receiving three additional shares for each one you own. Uh, so the stock closed at about 400 yesterday. Uh, that means you'll have, instead of one share at 400, you'll have four shares at 100. Um, and the idea behind a split is simply to make a high price stock more attractive and hopefully generate more buying interest. So, uh, plus they're not doing too badly. They are now the most profitable company in the world. Uh, so I'd say they're doing pretty good. You know, their demand for apps and work for home devices really work to their advantage. Again, along with this uh, stock split. Facebook also reported earnings Thursday after the close. They said uh, they're getting increased engagement from their users. Amazon, oh my goodness, <laughs> they totally blew away the forecast. They had an 89% increase in operating income. And the uh, analysts, they should be ashamed of themselves for this one. They're expecting a 60% drop. So uh, you can see that they're uh, talk about relativity. Yeah. Amazon relatively outperformed. It was up a hundred and some points on Thursday. And then uh, on the other hand, Alphabet underperformed uh, because their advertisers weren't spending as much money. So because their stock came in less than expected, they got sold. So that's just how it works. Um, you know, the, the stock market, I mean, this is according to David Banson of uh, the Banson Group. He says, the stock market looks forward and most economic data looks backward. Investors should be prepared for a choppy process of data digestion. That doesn't sound good. Uh, But not be surprised that the market feels the future is better than the present and that unprecedented stimulus and liquidity exist to drive valuations higher. Well, I think that makes perfect sense. Uh, you know, many of the key economic indicators, uh, perhaps most notably retail sales, have termed sharply positive. So you ask, how could these global stocks basically be flat for the year? And that's up 45% from the May 23rd, excuse me, March 23rd low. When, in fact, the economies in many countries are in recession and they're losing jobs. Well, the answer is fairly straightforward. Stocks are looking much further into the future. It's normal in early bull markets. But while most other economic data are backward looking, all these, like the GDP, the jobs figures, all of these kinds of things are, for the most part, backward looking. And they're called late-lagging indicators. And and employment is typically one of the last ones to turn anyway. Um, 
and they represent, you know, basically old news, history. And so they result from economic growth rather than causing it. So measures like the Purchasing Managers Index, which we'll be getting uh, next week from manufacturing sector, it's a s- snapshot of how that sector of the economy is faring. And while that will vary uh, because the Purchasing Managers Indices are more timely but don't have the detail of the GDP, they do indicate what the economy just did. Yeah, stocks are leading indicators. They focus primarily on the next three to 30 months. They factor in all widely known information and value companies' future earning power. So if you're getting a tip about a company, I would be, uh, you know, take that with a shaker of salt because most news is out there. And during a bear market, Stocks tend to focus on the immediate conditions right ahead. In other words, the short end of that three to 30-month range. Once they get a, a sense of how big that contraction is going to be and how long it might last, well, then the stocks start looking toward the longer end of that three to 30-month period and start factoring in future earnings growth. And I think that's what we've seen stocks do so far this year. They first dealt with this uh, lockdown-driven fallout and upcoming recession and then after figuring that stuff out the stocks have moved on they're looking ahead to future profits and even before the economic downturn officially ends so that's a good thing you know the worst economic news is over or should be without a second lockdown orders for motor vehicles and capital goods are rising housing strong service economy is probably going to take longer to come back but it will do so when folks feel confident enough to venture out we don't need another second quarter lockdown. That's for sure. So the GDP is, you know, it's a useful, comprehensive look at all economic activity, in this case in the country. But it's quarterly, and except for UK and Canada. And uh, it tends to gloss over month-to-month changes. And, you know, passable markets have proven that stocks don't need the GDP to recover from it to its prior peak as quickly as it fell. Now, recovery that puts corporate earnings on a path higher over the next year or two is usually good enough. Having said all that, we had its biggest, we had our biggest quarterly drop in activity ever. No, we're back to relativity. Not as bad as, as feared. Um, the GDP fell at 32.9%. That's the annual rate in the second quarter. That's the fastest since the Depression. So to put this in perspective, the worst quarter before that, uh, since the immediate wind-down after World War II, was the first quarter in 1958. We had a drop then in the GDP of 10%. Well, and guess what? We had an Asian flu thing going on then, but it didn't shut down the economy like this. I guess our politicians were smarter then. A bear market is stocks way of reckoning with an economic contraction and its effect on corporate earnings. You know, once markets have a feel for, again, how deep this recession will be and how long it'll last, they're able to start looking out further, like we said just before the break. So stocks don't have to move with the GDP. Uh, Tempting as it may be to dig into the details to see which state's response had less of an economic impact it's really useful only for academic purchases, purposes, excuse me, not portfolio positioning or stock market forecasting. And 
based on how markets generally behave, we think the bear market that ran from February to March 23rd was just the stock's way of prepicing the stuff we're going through right now. So, according to Peter Bookvar, Chief Investment Officer at Bleakley Advisory Group, and I agree with Mr. Bookvar, who's been in the biz a long time, he said, bottom line, the numbers, of course, are all self-inflicted, with about half the quarter reflecting almost the full lockdown, while the other half the slow reopening. We also learned the personal savings rate, which is savings as a share of after-tax income, is up to 25.7%. Now, that should support spending in the current quarter, but the combination of virus concerns and worries about the economy is likely going to continue some folks' willingness to part with that cash. Now, I think it's very important to realize that all of this is rear-view mirror stuff. Okay, We anticipate real GDP growth in this quarter, the third quarter, to be around 15%. Now, that would be the fastest quarterly pace in more than 40 years. You say, well, how can you do that? Well, if you look, typically markets, you know, you have really good days, and then subsequent you might have a real bad one, and vice versa, just in the individual market. Well, you're seeing that here in the GDP as well. Uh, we'll likely get a very rapid rate of recovery for the third quarter, even if the pace of growth does drop a little bit going forward. That's because the level of economic activity was so much higher at the end of June than it was on average in the whole quarter. But, you know, a full recovery is a long way off, and that unemployment rate isn't going to be dropping much below 4% uh, for a couple years anyway, I'm assuming. So, all's not well with the U.S. economy, far from it, but it's generally headed in the right direction. So, do not despair. Uh, here's some Fed rep excuse me, economic reports from the week. Um, I don't know if you were even aware of it, but there was a Fed meeting Wednesday, uh, but you didn't miss anything. Um, the Fed's policymaking committee said that our U.S. economic activity and employment, quote, have picked up somewhat in recent months, but remain well below their levels at the beginning of the year. Now, I don't know. I think maybe I could be on the Fed committee with that kind of comment. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Mr. Powell, the Fed chair, uh, added some filler in the press conference. He noted that the pace of the recovery has slowed recently, though he didn't seem concerned about any double-dip recession. And he said the Fed has no plans to curtail its accommodative stance in any way, and the Fed views the economic shock as, quote, disinflationary. He told reporters the Fed will maintain its historic stimulus measures until the Fed's confident the economy has weathered the crisis. Well, okay then. So, consumer spending rose sharply in June. See, this is all part of this underlying growth that's going on now. And this is while extra government stimulus payments remained on a downward trend, which pushed down overall personal income for the month. Uh, the June's decline in personal income is uh, to directly traced to the tapering off of CARES Act stuff. Meanwhile, private sector wages and salaries, small business income, unemployment benefits, they all continue to go up. Up is good. Personal income rose, uh, which... Should come as a little surprise because we did add 4.8 million jobs. Now, real estate's doing very well. Um, nationally, prices, home prices, uh, rose 4.5% in May. Uh, 
That's according to S&P CoreLogic Case Schiller. Uh, and pending home sales. These are contracts, signed contracts on existing homes. They continue to go up in June. They were up 16.6% since May and up uh, 6.3% year over year from last June. And this is according to National Association of Realtors. Uh, that's the second straight month of uh, gains in contract activity. And it said one of the biggest issues remains with the supply of homes. I think anybody who's out looking for a house knows this to be true. You know, <laughs> you don't get to sit around for two or three weeks and figure out, do I want to buy that house? Uh, you might have two or three minutes to make that decision sometime. And the supply dropped 18% in June. We We've got one and a half million homes available for sale all around the country. And based on the current sales price, that's a four-month supply. Last June, a year ago, we had 350,000 more homes on the market. So we just had a, an increase of 1%. And so you're having a combination of high lumber prices, um, unavailability of uh, capable crews, uh, <laughs> all that stuff it's a challenge for the for buying homes right now but it is a good trend in that the supply is there and so too is the demand so uh let's see we got a little bit more time before the break and i want to kind of get started into what we're going to talk about after the break um, a gentleman named daniel kahneman uh, he is the first ever psychologist to win the Nobel Prize in Economics. Now, we've talked about him here before because he got that Nobel Prize for his work in behavioral economics. Why do people do what they do when it comes to their money? And he said, all of us would be better investors if we just made fewer decisions. Now, what's he talking about? He's talking about the instinct many folks have to change investments in reaction to some either real or imagined crisis in the economy and the markets. And, well, I guess public health and current environment. Now, the key word here is reaction. So how do you react? What is your What happens? If you're acting on your long-term plan to accumulate enough capital to fund a dignified and retirement or you are in retirement and are managing your assets accordingly, chances are overwhelmingly good you're doing the right thing. Likewise, if you're retired and continuously acting uh, on this plan of withdrawing less than the historic long-term compound growth of about 10% annually, you're probably still doing okay. But if you react to a crisis... Uh, like the now you see it, now you don't 33-day bear market of earlier this year, you may well wind up doing damage to the strategy you set up for your long-term benefit. Don't do that. Well, <laughs> you may have heard, although it really hasn't gotten much play in the greater scheme of things lately, um, the, both the gold and silver prices have hit new uh, highs this past week. Now, the highs they hit are what they call nominal highs, which means it's the highest number, highest price number. But if you adjust it for inflation, neither are close to their all their real all-time highs. But 
Okay, we're splitting hairs here a little bit. The fact is they're both up. Now, I am on the record as being a non-gold bug. That is to say, in my entire career, I can never remember having recommended gold as an investment to someone. Now, having said that, it is my job as an investor, well, not as an investor, but as an, as an advisor to provide good information so folks can make an informed decision. Now, that's what I'm going to try to do with gold because I think we're moving into this, well, it's not a bubble, but it is getting a little bit ahead of itself. And uh, so let's uh, try to provide you with some facts so you can decide. So we've got two issues. We've got the recent flare-up in gold and silver prices and uh, the media uh, flogging this, oh my goodness, the dollar is going in the tube, it's going to be worth 13 cents, oh no. And then, coincident with that, of course, big inflation. Now they're saying that because of this monetary and fiscal stimulus that's out there. You know, it didn't seem to matter in 2008 and through 10. I don't know that it will matter now, but I guess we'll see. In any case, uh, UBS Chief Investment Officer Mike Mark Hafley said, and I'm quoting, while we think gold will continue to be supported by rising geopolitical tensions, in our view, the primary drivers of the gold price are its negative correlation to real interest rates and the dollar. We think these factors, in, in combination with limited supply growth as miners continue to restrain capital spending, will tend to drive gold prices higher. And in a note circulated before the uh, metals hit their new highs this week, uh, a gentleman from the Commonwealth Bank of Australia named Vivek Dahar said the drop in the 10-year yield in the U.S. has been the most important driver uh, in terms of the price. So, proverbial bottom line, should you own gold? Well, I think it really comes down to your attitude. No kidding. Uh, it, it's what's your view of the world and how do you view gold? In my experience, uh, <laughs> most uh, big gold bugs tend to have an overall negative view of uh, financials and things of that nature. But that's just a broad brush statement, certainly not one I would uh, want to put any money on, so to speak. But what is your view of the world? How do you view gold? Why are you buying it? Is it because it's shiny and looks pretty? Is it because it's an investment? Or do you think of it as a protection against uncertainty? Well, compared to the bad old days, it's a lot easier to own gold today. Back in the day, you had to own bullion or coins, both of which required uh, them to be held in uh, vaults and to be insured and assayed. And oh my goodness, it had more expense than just owning this stuff. But today, well, you can still own it physically for sure. But most folks own it through the exchange-traded funds, particularly the GLD Golf Lima Delta, which is the biggest uh, ETF for precious metals, and I think one of the two biggest in the world. Um, in any case, so why do people buy gold? Uh, there seem to be about five main reasons. Number one, and uh, this is not in my humble opinion, this is just what I've derived from reading, um, 
Number one is a store of value. Gold can be traded and stored for future use. Right now, about 40% of total gold production goes into the direct physical investment in gold, whether it's bullion or coins. Now, again, this is global, too. Uh, for jewelry, about 50% of the gold production goes into jewelry. In many countries, such as India, uh, gold in the form of jewelry is often a very large part of the household's net worth. Um, inflation hedged. Conventional wisdom. Now, you know the trouble with conventional wisdom? It usually isn't wisdom, that is. Anyhow, the conventional wisdom is that when inflation rises rapidly, investors often turn to gold. A hedge against uncertainty. Investors want to flee to gold during times of crisis, whether it be financial or geopolitical. Um, and for diversification. Gold is often considered to be an asset class separate from stocks, bonds, and other commodities, and therefore used to diversify risk, since it's not really correlated with the movement of other asset classes. In other words, if stocks go up, gold goes down, that kind of thing. That's, uh, it would tend to give you some balance, at least theoretically. Now, there are some reasons to doubt gold's value, despite its attractive qualities. It has been a fairly poor performer against both stocks and bonds over the last several decades. That's decades. One study found that going back to 1972, from 72 to 2013, stocks outperformed gold whether rates were rising, falling, or flat. Now, another problem with gold, and this is Mr. Buffett's big bugaboo with gold, is it doesn't do anything. It's a totally unproductive asset. I mean, other than looking pretty. It doesn't throw off earnings in the future you can lay claim to. doesn't pay a dividend. doesn't pay interest. It just sits there, and it will cost you money to store it, even if you own an ETF. So what are the drivers of the gold prices? Well, one of the biggest challenges of investing in gold is determining its true value. With no income stream to value, gold prices flip widely based on whatever short-term supply and demand is going on, and a lot of that is, of course, news-driven. The traditional driver of gold demand, which is jewelry, has fallen as a percentage of total demand, while the financial demand has moved up. Now, the best evidence we found historically to explain gold price moves is what's happening with short-term Real inflation rates. Again, real is after you factor in inflation. So why should gold prices rise when real short-term rates are falling and vice versa? Well, falling real rates of interest happen when economies are slowing, and then gold is attractive to some investors in that environment as a portfolio hedge. It's also less expensive to own gold in that environment because the carrying costs of the investment and the opportunity costs have fallen. If the inflation premium is rising, that lowers the real rate of interest. That will cause some investors to buy gold as an inflation hedge. Let's talk about this inflation hedge thing. What's the story with that? In, in actual fact, gold has not proved to be a very good hedge against inflation. What's this? Well, infl investors, you have many... Options to hedge against inflation, the three most common are 
in no particular, gold, inflation-protected securities, and natural resources. These are like owning the companies that own the commodities, like uh, timber, oil, real estate, those kinds of things. Now, uh, gold prices have historically had a reasonably positive correlation to rising inflation, but that correlation is not near as strong as it is with those other two categories. A higher correlation than gold uh, comes from the TIPS, which is Treasury uh, Inflation Protected Securities. These are bonds that um, the principal is tied to the consumer price index. And if the CPI goes up, your principal goes up. If the CPI goes down, your principal goes down. And when these things come due, and they have maturities all over the place, uh, like regular bonds, you can either get your original principal back or you'll get more if inflation has indeed gone up over the holding period. So in any case, it is a way to protect yourself against inflation plus earn a little bit of income in the meantime because that income stream is tied to the rate of inflation. But, you know, like bonds, like regular long bonds, you got to be careful that uh, you don't get out there too far because it does carry inflation risk. Um, I I just to reiterate, uh, there's three ways basically to protect yourself against inflation risk. And yes, even though we have low inflation right now, it doesn't hurt to have these kinds of issues in your portfolio because you know inflation doesn't make an announcement say, okay, I'm back. Um, it starts coming back kind of insidiously, you know, it just kind of sneaks up on you. So it's good to have that stuff uh, in there in any case to, uh, to some degree. So the three uh, are, again, gold, inflation-protected securities, and natural resource stocks. So the TIPS, the Treasury uh, Inflation-Protected Securities, is one way. Uh, and as I mentioned right before the break, don't go too far out in the maturities of these things because they do have interest rate risk just like any other bond. So I would recommend personally to keep uh, that maturity 10 years or less. Now, the highest correlation with inflation is not from gold, is not from tips. It's come from the stocks in natural resources, uh, particularly the stocks of commodities producers. You've got... uh, they provided the best protection against inflation because the companies frequently benefit from both rising prices and profitability during periods of broad inflation. Now, again, as I mentioned, you get nothing from gold while you wait, so to say. Well, a couple of local companies uh, would meet these criteria as inflation protectors. Protectors, Potlatch Delta plays a 3.7% dividend currently. Warehouser pays a 4.8% dividend currently. And they're both uh, in uh, the forestry business. ConocoPhillips, uh, 4.4% dividend, oil and gas. That's certainly one. Real estate is another category where you can have assets that provide you nice dividends uh, while you wait in, again, also protect you against any inflation. So here's another reason people buy gold. It's for uh, if they're concerned about the debasement of their own currency, in this case, the dollar. And 
gold has historically been negatively correlated with the dollar because it goes up when the dollar goes down. But it's also a pretty volatile way to do things because currency transactions, in this case, are like a zero-sum game. For this to work, uh, for you, for the dollar to go down and benefit your gold purchase, you have to presume that uh, the euro, the yen, the pound, and the renminbi are all going to go up against the dollar, and that's a low likelihood in today's world. Um, and let the record reflect, any benefit of gold investing can be quite fleeting. Its most clear benefits are derived during these periods of low real short-term interest rates and or market stress events. But in order for you to benefit, your sense of market timing and your trading skills are the only way to allow you to actually capture some gains as the metal's price flips all over the place. Because if you just buy it and hold it, once again, no dividends, no interest, that's it. And with the reality that... Short-term rates are pretty much unable and I think unlikely to fall much more. A significant further drop in rates will require a big jump in inflation, which we do not expect. But even if it were to happen, uh, those tips and the natural resource stocks are definitely superior hedges against inflation than is gold. Northern Trust Bank offered this comment this past week. They said that, the price of gold is inherently unpredictable as it lacks the traditional economic fundamentals for forecasting fair value. And that's true. So, let me restate my thesis. First, gold would be perhaps the most ill-advised investment known to mankind except for the fact that it's not even an investment. It's just a, a piece of metal which produces nothing, yields nothing, and is entirely without intrinsic value unless you count it as perhaps a doorstop. Its value exists only by common consent. That is to say, how much do you and I think it's worth? And if I own it, you've got to give me more than what I paid for it in order for that to work, don't you? So gold doesn't really go up. It's just that the value of the dollar goes down, relatively speaking. And as to the current situation, in no particular order, the dollar isn't cratering. It's simply returning back to its average zone. Uh, it's called regressing to the mean, they call it. It shot up wildly during the recent uh, maximum panic, uh, you know, February, March, and immediately thereafter. And all it's doing now is settling back toward long-term norms. Now, it is... Correct, and certainly uh, we've been reminded that gold has made these all-time highs. The last all-time high it set was in August, excuse me, of 2011, and it was at 1850. So, on a dollar-for-dollar dollar basis, one could say that gold has essentially been dead money for nine years, right? Because it's just now getting back to where it was at that time. The day gold actually hit 1850, which was August 11th, 2011, I know you remember it well, the S&P closed at 1173. Today, well, as of yesterday when it closed, 
the S&P was at 3,271. Now, I don't think that you would write that down as your best trade ever had you sold your shares to buy gold. So, is your investment thesis somewhat similar now? And if so, what makes it different? At its blow-off top uh, during, um, what's that guy's name, Jimmy Carter's uh, administration, when there was global inflation panic, and that was January of 80, gold traded briefly above $800. Now, that was not adjusted for inflation. That is the all-time high on a real basis. If you adjust it for inflation, it's around, I think, $2,500, $2,700. So it's not, gold is not at a real all-time high. And by the way, silver topped out at $40 an ounce back then. And it's uh, 24 something today. So, well, it's, yeah, it's a high. It's not really high, okay? So basically, gold has gone from 800 to 2,000 over 40 years. That's up two and a half times. However, if you look at the consumer price index, which is how we measure inflation at our level, over that same 40 years, Inflation's up 3.3 times. That is not an inflation hedge, folks. If inflation is up more than your asset, you have a negative return. That's called a loss. In January 1980, the S&P was set at 111. At 32.71, it's up about 29 times compared to gold's two and a half times. Kind of get the picture here. So, conclusion, gold's not such a great investment long-term. Selling stocks to buy gold is a really bad idea, and by far the best inflation hedge I've ever seen has been mainstream U.S. stocks, and this time is not different. I thank you very much for listening. We'll be back next Saturday at 9 Pacific to talk with you again about the markets and the economy. I'm Mike Mayo with the Spokane office of the Opus 111 Group. Have a great weekend. Be sure and listen to Opus 111's Mike Mail every Saturday morning on 920 AM KXLY in Spokane. Stream the show on KXLY920.com or subscribe to this podcast and we'll bring the latest episode to you. Securities offered through KMS Financial Services.